0: So this is kind of a strange request. Continuing our trend this month of covering games that aren't the best gift games, but were trendsetters or did things that were unique or new or interesting or innovative, we're now covering the Annihilation series. Now, it's not actually called that. There is, in fact, no official, legal, you know, rights, IP, wrong, whatever uh, thing actually connecting these, other than the fact that they were made by the same basic people and team, and that they have the same general style of gameplay, such that each game could be seen as either a sequel or a spiritual successor to the previous. I'm referring, of course, to Total Annihilation and its uh, expansion, core contingency, Supreme Commander, as well as Forged Alliances, Supreme Commander 2, Planetary Annihilation, and Planetary Annihilation Titans. Now, I've played all these games before doing this rumination, except for Planetary Annihilation Titans. It was the only one I hadn't really touched. I actually picked it up as soon as it came out. And by all accounts, it did improve a lot of things, but I'll cover that later. But what I really want to talk about is several things that really helped to differentiate the Annihilation series from other RTSs. In general, most RTSs could be lumped into two types of categories. Build and Attack, or... Attack. A better way to put that would be, you can build units, and you have to build units, or you can't get reinforcements, so you're stuck with what you've got. These are two a slightly better way to present this. Dawn of War is kind of an in-between, but still leans towards the build uh, concept, whereas Dawn of War 2 is more the, you're stuck with your units. Uh, anybody who's played the old myth games knows what I mean by an RTS where you're just stuck with your five guys and that's it. You can't ever have more people in your team. You can't build more. But if you played virtually any RTS other, you know what I mean about the construction form. You know, the Command and Conquers, the, uh, the, the, the Warcrafts, the Starcrafts, the dozens of Clones, Command-and-Conquer and Warcraft clones, some good, some not, that came out in the 90s. All this is an example of the build-type RTSs. Now, the to- the Annihilation series is, in fact, a build ty- style, but sufficiently different that I really feel it needs to have its own separate category. And that would be the Annihilation style of, of RTS. So, I'm going to talk about the biggest thing last, so I'm going to build up to that. Um... They have 3D units in Total Annihilation, the first game. I'm going to kind of go down this in order. In the original Total Annihilation, the units were actually fully rendered 3D objects, which was brand new at the time. Uh, for a little bit of perspective, Total Annihilation came out very soon, or, or excuse me, very close to the release of StarCraft, the original StarCraft. So that gives you an idea of the era of what other RTSs were doing at the time. Now, StarCraft... <laughs> It's actually funny, if Total Annihilation had missed the StarCraft window, as it were, there's a pretty good chance that Total Annihilation would have been received a lot better. As it was, it kind of became a niche game, and indeed, that has stuck ever since. Every one of the Annihilation games is basically has niche appeal, and hasn't really managed to make it into mainstream or being well-known or common games. In fact, when I was playing Planetary Annihilation Titans on stream, there were some people who were like, I've never even heard of this. Is this a good RTS to start out with? You know, What should I do with this? Um, So, 3D, actual 3D units was brand new. Uh, The terrain was actually mapped. This is probably one of the biggest things that they don't use a lot... But it does matter every now and again in the entire Annihilation series. The terrain actually legitimately matters in two separate ways. Whoop! The first is that it tosses my notes to the ground. (laughs) The first is that there's actually a a map, a, a, a bit mapping for the terrain. So in other words, let me just give you a hypothetical. Let's say you've got a tank here, and they're at the base of a valley and you've got an enemy here, they might not be able to shoot up. Or actually, a better example than a tank would be like a turret. So you've got a defense turret here, and you can't shoot up because there's this hill in the way, right? It also meant that certain types of uh, maps, you could really get a choke point going because the enemy would have to go through this area, and they can't attack through certain angles because the terrain's actually in the way. This also made it so that certain weapon types mattered, in many cases more than the actual stats of the weapons. This unfortunately led to Total Annihilation, the first game, being really, really unbalanced when it came to any kind of competitive play or even just against the AI because, well, some units are just going to be way better than others because of the types of weapons they use or the manner in which they use them. But I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So we've got the mit- bit mapping, we've got the actual 3D units. Uh, I mentioned the planet matters. The other way the terrain matters is that each planet can function separately. And this is true for the entire Annihilation series to some extent or another. Even in the original Total Annihilation, you've got a metal planet where you can just drop down metal extractors anywhere, but there's no real water to speak of, and not counting the oil seas. Um... You've got the lunar areas, which have very few re- resources, uh, and reduced gravity. You've got the ice planets, which have the little bombarding uh, meteor storms. You've got the lava planets, with, which have their earthquakes and the lava flows. All sorts of terrain problems, in addition to the fact that you're fighting the enemy units. So that's actually another layer of strategy that helped to make them more interesting than what I'd been playing prior to then, which was basically Warcraft 2 and Red Alert. Both good games, but this additional layer of strategy really helped to make Total Annihilation stick out in my mind. I'll tell you another story about that later, too. Um, so, there's also Friendly Fire. This was a very new concept at the time. I mean, obviously, you can order a unit to attack another unit. That goes back as far as Warcraft 1, I think. And I'm pretty sure you can do that in the old Command & Conquers. But here, if you've got an artillery guy back here shooting into a melee, you're gonna hit your own guys, too, with, with the splash damage. I think that was in Red Alert as well. So that wasn't super new, but it felt like it was more common, more prolific with the, with the splash damage and the friendly fire in this game, and in these games in general, than it was in other games. And, of course, one other way in which Total Annihilation was innovative was the fact that the AI was absolutely terrible. No, seriously, I, I can't even summarize to you how bad the AI was in the original Total Annihilation. Um, it basically isn't an AI. Uh, it effectively will build random stuff at random times or at set times, depending if you're playing like a story map, and then will set them to attack randomly, and then it will build more random stuff, and it could lead to all sorts of messes. Ironically, sometimes that meant the AI would be incredibly deadly. Most of the time it meant that they would just be like, and have no idea what they're doing. But the final thing that Total Annihilation did, and admittedly StarCraft did this as well, but Total Annihilation I actually played first. And again, I'm kind of building up to that story. And I ended up really digging it because it taught me something that no other game had done before. And in fact, to be completely blunt, StarCraft didn't really do this to the same extent. Almost every unit in Total Annihilation was hyper-specialized. Now, you might be like, well, that doesn't sound like a very good thing, because you'd have to have a mixed force. And admittedly, that wasn't a very good thing. If we're looking back at it from a design perspective, the fact that you have to have a mixed force to be able to take on certain types of enemies or to deal with a certain type of terrain may or may not be considered good or bad gameplay design. That's not what I'm here to debate. What it did was it taught me, the player, playing this game back in my old you know, 48633, exactly how to deal with... I'm saying this wrong. To vary my units. This is something I do nowadays to the point of near exclusion. You know, if I'm playing StarCraft Two, as a great example of this, I, I very rarely will actually just mass X unit and then A move towards the enemy. I prefer to have a varied army, and this is something that I've done ever since I played Total Annihilation. That's the game that taught me that concept. Uh, although, Warcraft Three did it a lot better because... Warcraft 3 was an awesome game. and It's one of the only RTS... In fact, I would say, Warcraft 3 is probably the only RTS I ever actually bothered to get good at back in the day. So, shrug. So with all this hyper-specialization, you know, I'm like, oh god, I have to actually do all this. Now, let me explain why I played TA more than slash before StarCraft. Now I gotta, I gotta affix something at the end of that because once I did get into StarCraft, I stayed in StarCraft. I played the overliving crap out of StarCraft. Um, I've often said that StarCraft was my first MMO because it was the thing I would do to play when I didn't have anything else to play, kind of like you'd do with an MMO, right? You know, it's like, oh, I've got an evening, I've only got an hour to burn, I don't feel like pushing through the latest RPG or trying that other game. I'm just going to go play some StarCraft for a bit. You know, that kind of a thing. But I didn't initially because I had a 48633. And for those of you who don't know what that means, which I imagine is actually several of you, it's not a particularly good computer. Um, I was at the time looking into upgrading my computer by adding a processor which would push it up to about 100 megahertz, as opposed to the 33, which it was doing at the time. Yeah. So here's the thing. Couldn't play StarCraft. Literally could not play StarCraft. I bought the game, and I loved reading the manual, and I loved eating up the lore that was in the manual, because Blizzard is kind of awesome about lore. But I couldn't play it. But I could play Total Annihilation. Now, what's funny about this... I wonder how many of you understand this perspective. The reason I could play Total Annihilation is it would play very slowly. Basically, it would be playing at, I guess, the equivalent of like two frames a second or something. I didn't really realize that. I know that sounds stupid, and maybe I was just an idiot at the time, but I'd be playing this game, and it's like, all right, build a metal extractor, and that would take like 40 seconds. And then go build this other thing. And I didn't mind. I had Jeremy Sewell's music to listen to. By the way, Jeremy Sewell did the the soundtrack, and it's awesome. I I recommend you go look it up on YouTube right now and listen to it while you're listening to me. Unless you don't want to listen to me, you can just listen to the music too. That's okay too. But I was okay with that. And I walked into Total Annihilation with the mentality of email chess which is another thing i imagine some of you don't know what that is uh, it was literally a thing where you'd email or in some cases mail uh, a turn to someone and you'd have a chessboard and they'd have a chessboard and so every time one of you does a move you move the piece send the mail or snail uh, or email to them they then move the piece you moved then they think about their turn and then they do it it's very, very methodical, very, very slow kind of a thing. It's you, you know, a usual match will last like a month or more, even with an emails thing. And I kind of approached it with that mentality. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set up these metal extractors. I want this thing here, and I want it to start making some K-Bots. And then I'd walk up and go do some chores or get some homework done for, you know, for school or try and get some cleaning done or go get dinner, you know come back, okay, it's about done. And that's how I played Total Annihilation. Didn't exactly teach me the reflexes and speed uh, I would need, and probably is one of the reasons why it took until Warcraft 3 for me to actually get good, no pun intended, at RTSs, because I was having trouble with that real-time part, since I learned so much in Total Annihilation. Playing at, like, 1% speed or whatever. So, (sighs) That's my personal story with the TA series. Um, I got Contingency the moment it came out, and uh, I enjoyed that. I didn't get into Kingdoms. I wasn't really into Kingdoms. I'll talk about that a little bit. I, I'm not covering Kingdoms today, by the way. It wasn't part of the requested bundle. I got Supreme Commander the moment it came out, and I was like, yeah, a new title Annihilation. Something about it didn't quite click with me. I'll talk about that when we get there. Uh Forged Alliance was probably the best of the subcom series, but then Supreme Commander 2 just was really weird. And then Planetary Annihilation was kind of buggy and lacking features and had no real meat to it. And Titans kind of has the same problem. So of all the series, the only one I still really enjoy to this day, like I say I really would love to sit down and replay, is the original Total Annihilation. And admittedly, I think at least some of that is because of nostalgia. <sighs> so Let's talk about the biggest thing that the, that really is the hallmark of the Annihilation series. I've been building up to this point. It's the economy. I know, I know, I can't get away with doing anything without talking about econ- economics with you guys, but hear me out, okay? In most games in general, where there is a game economy, it boils down to collect, store, spend. But that's not how the Annihilation series works. The Annihilation series and I know I'm going to fail at explaining this, so forgive me, but the Annihilation series functions as... ...input, output, and net. And that is actually far more realistic of an expression of an actual economy, as in currency, than any of the other RTSs. The other RTSs make sense, and and Forexs and all other sorts of games, make sense when it comes to resources... Because that's how resources work. You have a mine, you pull ore out of it, you use the ore. But that's not what an economy is. That's not what the currency and the market and the flow of money through that market is because that is, that is an economy in a nutshell. The flow of currency through a market and the goods and services that are exchanged to allow that money conti- to continue to fluctuate throughout the course of the market. So from a market perspective, you're, you're not tracking Pulling in one hundred and fifteen or or spending seventy five or, you're tracking pulling in x or per time and spending x or per time. Make sense? And something about that just caught my attention. I, it's, it's hard to probably explain how much that appealed to me because at this point it wasn't about managing you know your your stock. It was about managing how much you were pulling and how much you were spending per time, not overall. If I wanted to build, I'll use a ridiculous example, a Krogoth, right? Or a Korgoth. I think it's a Krogoth. I wanted to build a Krogoth right now. Well, that's going to take absolutely freaking forever. In fact, I think the first time I ever built a Krogoth, still in the crappy computer, uh, I think it took something like 45 minutes of real time to build. It's not a joke. But um, I want to build a Krogoth. Well... The total cost of a Krogoth is, and I'm gonna make up numbers here, let's say 100 metal and 100 energy. That's of course way less than it is, but just making up numbers. So, if I have a constructor who, who all constructors have a, basically a constructing stat. This is how quickly they can spend energy or resources in order to construct something, right? So I have a constructor who could spend one energy and metal per second, okay? So that constructor will start nanolathing, and it will take him 100 seconds to build this Krogoth. Now that, of course I'm making up numbers here, but let's just assume for this argument that that's a long time. You know, a little little under a minute and a half in order to, or excuse me, a little over a minute and a half in order to build this unit. Now, thing is, that's very cheap to do, because from an economic perspective in my currency, all that's making... That All that's changing in my thing is I am at negative one metal and negative one energy. So that's costing me virtually nothing. In fact, I probably have enough income from my metal extractors and enough income from my power plants to completely negate that to the point where it literally costs me nothing. You see how that can work out? Now, of course, there's other ways to express this. Let's say I add a hundred constructors, all of them who can do that one per second. Well, they will construct the Krogoth in one second because all of them are putting all their construction power into it at once but that's also going to mean i have a negative a hundred metal and a negative a hundred energy but only for that one second so i might be able to recover from that even if my net is only like plus three or something like that in addition there's also storage units so you can build metal storage and energy storage right and they act exactly as you'd imagine. And there's a lot of long-term strategies centered around that, you know, trying to get a bunch of metal storage on a metal dry planet and just trying to manage your expenditures so you're always generating metal. So that the idea is you have very little income, so if you start building units on mass, this is just going to plummet, right? Because you're spending so much more than you're pulling in. But if you have a lot of storage built up, even though it's plummeting, it's okay because it's there to be plummeted, and then you finish building your units, and it slowly starts refilling again, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff you can do with the economy, and it's it's probably my favorite aspect of the Annihilation series in general, and I love it. There's one other thing I love about the Annihilation series, and it's mostly a thing in the original Total Annihilation. You can only do it to an extent in the rest of the Annihilation series, and that is... The base creep defense, um, or what I used to refer to as the Constructor Army. Um, I actually even wrote a story uh, back in, I guess this would have been college at this point. Uh, you know, early 2000s, whatever the hell that was, uh, late 90s. Um, I actually sat down and wrote a story once about the Constructor Army because I loved the idea so much. But It, it boils down to this. In Total Annihilation, you don't have NSCV. You have a Tier 1 Constructor Bot, and a Tier 2 Constructor Bot, and in some cases, a Tier 3, depending on circumstances, right? So, you build the Tier 1 who builds advanced stuff, and you build the Tier 2 who can build really advanced stuff. And almost all the tech is boiled down to these three tiers, with the occasional super stuff in the experimental tier, as they would call it in Supreme Commander. So, you would build, your commander would build a bot factory, okay? Then the bot factory would build one tier one constructor. He would go out and build an advanced bot factory who would build an advanced K-Bot constructor. You with me so far? Once he's out, he can build all sorts of stuff. He has access to like all sorts of schematics for things he can build. And he has a much more advanced build rate than the previous two units. So then you have him build base defenses and resource production, and that's it. In other words, never actually building a military unit, never actually having an army. Now, this was trickier than it sounded, because Total Annihilation had the unique distinction of having a wide variety of different types of of implements of defense. Um, You had short point defense, you had laser defense, you had uh, medium range artillery, you had missile artillery, uh, you had actual nuke launchers and, of course, nuke uh, interceptors. Long-range artillery, rapid-fire long-range artillery. Um, I feel like I'm still missing some. There's a whole bunch of different types of defense. Oh, of course, and the different types of anti-air that existed as well. And, of course, the different types of anti-sea in the naval maps. All of this stuff needed... Again, it's the whole hyper-specialization thing. You can't just build a line of laser towers. That's going to just get crumbled and you're going to be screwed. You also need to be... So you need to be setting all this stuff up. And you have to make sure you have a radar set up. This is another thing. I just realized this is another thing that the Annihilation series has always done and is kind of unique to it, the way they approach radar. Um, you you build these radar units, and you, you see blips on the map for where the enemies are. And, of course, that's informative. But the real important point is you can attack those blips directly. And that's how the advancing wall of the constructor thing works, because you build this line of... Anti-air, artillery, and, uh, and and other defenses and emplacements that you need here. And then you build a radar there. You attack anything that's in range. If there's nothing that's in range, you go forward like a mile or whatever. You know, You go forward another step, build another line of defenses, and then build another radar. And now you can see further, because each radar has a limited range. Until you have the whole map mapped, and your artillery has shelled the enemy before you've ever even seen them. I liked that strategy. I thought that was fun. It doesn't work quite as well in any other game other than the original 2, but it was fun and interesting. And, of course, the radar mechanic worked nicely with that. Another thing I want to say is pretty much every Annihilation game has been very mod-friendly. I don't think any of them have actually put out mod tools. I could be wrong about that. But all of them have been extremely easy to mod. Kind of like the old Civilization games, like Civ 2, for example, was super, super easy to mod and write scenarios for, specifically because of the way they designed the game. That's kind of what I mean by mod-friendly. So... There were all kinds of custom units and custom mechanics and and total conversions, all sorts of stuff for the original Total Annihilation, and several similar things for the Supreme Commander series. Haven't seen much for the Planetary series. I don't have much to talk about there. Another thing I want to talk about... So I mentioned we're not really talking about Kingdoms. Uh, Total Annihilation Kingdoms was actually the first game they wanted to make when they sat down and did this. But they were having issues with the engine. Remember, I mentioned it's actually 3D rendered stuff. So what they built looked terrible, basically. So instead, they decided to make everything look nice and blocky. And if you've ever seen the units in the original Total Annihilation, you'll see what I mean by the blocky style. And they said, okay, here, plonk. If we're doing blocky units, it has to be sci-fi. And the setting of the series just kind of grew naturally out of that. And then when they refined the engine and knew what they were doing better, they made the Kingdom series, which was over there and I don't really care that much about and I'm not talking about today. Now, I already mentioned Jeremy Sewell. I'm looking at my notes here really quick. Uh, there's little to no story and plot in the original total annihilation. Most of what you get is the narrator setting up the premise, you know, war, thousand years, nobody cares, blah blah blah. Um, and almost all of the actual story of the original total annihilation is focused in the world building, uh, literally, actually in this case, by the fact that the narrator, sets up and describes all sorts of things about each of the planets that you're fighting on as you go throughout the course of the game. The plot is extremely basic. In both cases, whether you start as the arm or the core, which I'll talk about in a moment, uh, you have been losing the Great War, uh, the Eternal War. And you have been pushed back until you're on your very last planet. And you're going to do a desperate attack to try and push back against the enemy and take control of their gateways, which is how you hop from planet to planet, to try and hop back to their planet and push them to the point of annihilation and wipe them out. You know, that, that's the overall goal. That's the plot. Very, very basic. There's no real characters or characterization or character arcs because there really are no characters anymore, which is kind of the point. But I said I'd talk about the Arm and the Core, so I'm going to talk about the Ruler Click. Uh, the Arm is called that because most of their power base was based in the Arm of the Galaxy, and the Core is called that because they were based in the Core systems. Very basic, I know. All of this started over one of the simplest premises, it's actually hysterical when you think about it, Uh, they had discovered a process known as patterning, where you would take the mental imprint of someone and put it into a machine so that they could effectively live forever. Based on how it's described, this is never actually analyzed in the work, based on how it's described, I'm pretty sure this is effectively cloning. In other words, the original you will still die. You will still die, but there will be a duplicate of you which will get to live forever. And based on what happened with Central Consciousness, I'm pretty sure that's the direction that was being intended. Regardless, the major organization of the galaxy, which was human, it's worth noting, there's no aliens in this setting. Um, it, well, okay, there's aliens over in Supreme Commander, but for the most part, there are no aliens. The uh, government said, this is now mandatory. Everyone, 100% everyone has to go get patterned in order to establish our eternal dynasty. Now, a group of fanatics or terrorists or freedom fighters or vigilantes or rebels or whatever you want to call them, we don't even know anymore, said, no, no, that's terrible. This is We're going to lose our individuality, our humanity, by being put into these soulless machines. That's unacceptable. So they started fighting over it. And they kept fighting over it. Now... Oftentimes, fiction has what I refer to as Doctor Who syndrome. Uh, you may check my Lorium's page for, for analysis on that, or excuse me, an explanation of what that term means. This is one of the truly few fictional works I've seen that, Total Annihilation in particular, that doesn't actually suffer from Doctor Who syndrome, despite the fact that it's a war that's been going across a galaxy and has been last, lasting for about a millennia. And the reason why is because they actually thought it out, actually brought some scientific advisors on board, and actually put some real freaking science into most of the tech and how it works. So, the millennia of war is presented exactly as horrible as that should actually be. There are whole planets which are permanently scarred in ways that they will never recover. Whole Whole ecosystems, whole whole uh, fa- flora and fauna wiped out as a consequence of this of this war on a planetary scale, which is exactly what should happen. And the galaxy itself has been bled dry fighting this. It's one of the reasons why both sides are at the point where they can barely function anymore, and they only have one, well, two, but really only one commander is left. There used to be many commanders. There used to be way more people, way more ships, way more troops. It's all gone. It's all been spent and burnt, and it's gotten to the point where they can't even properly rebuild all that stuff anymore. They just have access to the the schematics and research that they have now, and the ability to still use the tech that they had, like the gates, for example. So, it's presented very believably... As weird as that may sound, and I think that's another thing that appealed to me. It's far more hard science than a lot of other science fiction in general is, video game or otherwise. I, of course, have to point out the obvious irony of both the Arm and the Core. The Arm, you know, have have a fight about the importance of individual consciousness and humanity, and so they decide to go and make endless clones each one who is a, effectively a mindless drone patterned off of an individual who is designed to fight and die by the droves in order to fight for the importance of the individual. The core, of course, started all of this to safeguard and better better help the lives of its people and ensure that there would be a prosper, prosperous future and a new dynasty of greatness and awesome, and they patterned. God, I don't even know what. It's actually debatable if there's any people left in the corps at this point uh, other than the Commander or possibly central consciousness. even that's debatable. But regardless, you know, they've got all of this this grandiose schemes, and all they do is they pattern people endlessly into these robots, which they then send out in droves to die, spending them as... Both sides spend units as if they were base currency. You know, th- This is a deliberate setting, and, and part of the overall hallmark of the Annihilation series is that you can send an army 100 strong at the enemy, lose 80 of it, and that's a good battle. Lots of lots of forces, large-scale battles, and lots of losses is one of the other hallmarks of the entire annihilation series. Uh, for a bit of contrast, over in say StarCraft, you have the food cap of 200, which means at like absolute most you can have what like 13 battle cruisers or something like that. By contrast, here you have a unit cap of 256, which can be raised, and a lot of people did this through mods or other uh, conveniences, to make it so you can have an entire army of like 300 troops, which are just marching over the enemy. And of course, Planetary Annihilation, as I showed off when I was streaming it, uh, I once put together, just, just for fun, an army of about 470 basic infantry units, tossed them at the enemy, and about 100 or so of them lived and I won. That's the whole point, narratively speaking, of where they're going with this. Both sides are at the point of being complete monsters. I'm not even sure like, if you could properly do a now-what story in this setting, uh, which I suppose brings me to my next point. So I mentioned how the first game doesn't really have a lot of story, other than what I've been telling you. Core Contingency, by contrast, has a much stronger plot emphasis. So Core Contingency says that in the first game, in the vanilla game, the Arm won. They were The Arm was the canon victory. Now, for those of you not aware, back in the day, uh, and this is true in Supreme Commander 1 as well, uh, back in the day, there would be multiple sides to a campaign, but... Only one of them would win in canon. Only one of them would be the lore victor. Uh, Starcraft was actually... I might not be the first, but it was the first game I saw where they broke that mold, where each campaign happened sequentially and therefore all had consequence. Uh, the Annihilation series would do this with uh, Forged Alliances, kind of, and later Supreme Commander 2. But Supreme Commander 1 and Total Annihilation and Core Contingency all had the one canon playthrough. So the Arm 1... And the other core commander... I mentioned there was a second one. The other core commander activates and goes about starting to try and use this alien device. I mentioned the alien thing, so... eh, Which they had developed to turn it into a superweapon, because of course it's a superweapon. Now I mentioned how most of this game is fairly hard science. This superweapon is frankly just magic. I don't mean magic as in, you know, I cast fire 3, which does 3d6 damage. No, I mean like magic! Because what the, what the, what this thing does, it's called the galactic implosion device. And that's pretty much exactly what it does. It pulls the entire galaxy into it, except for the spot around it, which is safe. It, basically, it pulls the galaxy into a bubble around it, and then expands it back out, recreating it. Now, It's worth noting that the tech level in all the Annihilation series is stupid high. We're talking extensive levels of matter, energy, control, and manipulation, and conversion. And in lore, the ability to drop a unit, a single unit, onto a planet and have an entire thousand-strong army in a matter of minutes, that is lore. So it's only stretching it a little bit, but still... So the core commander says, all right, I'm going to turn this thing on, and I'm going to literally wipe out everything, every life in the entire galaxy is about to be wiped out, except for me. And once that's done, I'll rebuild from the ashes. That's the core contingency. And thus the plot is all focused on either the arm trying desperately to stop the core commander, or the core commander trying just as desperately to make this happen, because he doesn't have much to go by either, so he's struggling just as much as the arm commander. Which one is victory? That I don't know. I'm not sure which one would actually be considered the canon victory of that, because the Total Annihilation series effectively ended, and the next game we got, segue, is Supreme Commander. Now, Supreme Commander, I'm going to go ahead and complain about one thing about it. Uh, this is actually true about Supreme Commander, Forged Alliances, and Supreme Commander 2, although Forged Alliances is overall my favorite of that particular trilogy. And that's... it always felt just a little bit too difficult to get things to happen the way I wanted them to. I don't want to just say UI, because a lot of people, when I say UI, they think what's on the screen. But I mean, the method by which I interface with the game never really gelled with me in Supreme Commander 1, and to to a lesser extent in the later games as well. Because... uh, Supreme Commander up to the ante considerably. You were actually supposed to now be using th- hundreds or thousands of units, and you could zoom way out and look down, basically from orbit, at the battle you're leading, all that kind of stuff. That was part of the 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 pitch, the marketing style. So you so you send all these troops, oh, charge, charge. Um, I had a really hard time t- distinguishing which units were what, telling what was going on where. Um, the built-in AI of a lot of your units, like the passive AI, really wasn't up to snuff. And this was in an era after I had played Warcraft 3, a game which had extremely good built-in unit AI, to the point where I could control my units very precisely and very carefully. In this case, however, there were plenty of times where I couldn't get aircraft to function properly or use the, the, the landing pads that I'd set up just for them, and they, they were just... Lots of little niggles and problems with it, which made overall playing Supreme Commander 1 just not that enjoyable for me. Um, however, it was better in many different ways. Um, but, I I right, right, sorry. It was better in many different ways. You know, it, it was overall better graphics. It played better, more units. And of course, it had a strong story emphasis. I find out, For this rumination, of course, I do some research and and trying to find out the whys and the wherefores. It turns out, this game was apparently meant to be a testbed for DirectX 10. And that explains so many of the issues with it, because there were optimization issues as well. I'm speaking specifically of Supreme Commander 1. And there were so many issues with it, so many problems uh, going through the game. And this explains basically all of it. Another big one was the pathfinding. That's another excellent example. It was just, what the hell? But uh, having said all that, having having talked about all of, all of that with regards to Supreme Commander 1, like I said, it has a far stronger story emphasis. The thing is, it has one of those excuse stories. You know what I mean? Like, there is a story there, and it is functional, but it's not particularly interesting. And if you ask me to sit down and discuss it, which is what I'm doing right now, I'm sitting at you like, oh, God, what is there to talk about here? Um, so the general premise of Supreme Commander is there's been this war that's been going on for a thousand years. Unlike Total Annihilation, this war has not been particularly devastating or horrible for some reason. Um, and these, these three factions have been fighting over significantly greater differences. And the three factions are actually distinct from each other, unlike in Total Annihilation, where the two factions were basically just relatively different in terms of units and weapon type. Here they're completely different overall and, and follow more the StarCraft model of ver- variety of units, or Warcraft 3, which, like I said, had come out by this point in time. So you have the uh, the UEF, uh, the United Earth Forces. You have the Aeon illuminate, illuminate, excuse me, and then you've got the Cyber Nation. Uh, each one of them serves a different role in terms of gameplay balance, depending on which of the three Supreme Commander games you're talking about. Overall, I tend to enjoy playing as the Cybrans most across all three games. I never really got into the Aeons. I still enjoyed playing as the UEF. That was still enjoyable in several uh, examples, especially since they were so aesthetically enjoyable. The basic premise is that there used to be this United Earth Empire... And then they, this guy, Brackman, <sighs> invents a process to uh, basically cybernetically augment and pattern people. This might sound familiar. And so he starts spreading this to all the, his cybernetic people. And the United, Emp- the United Empire is like, excellent! This will be a fantastic slave force! And starts treating them like second-class or third-class citizens. Enslaves them, and so that doesn't go well, obviously. Meanwhile, there's this group of people who find an actual honest-to-god alien race uh, called the Seraphim. And they're like, hey, and the Seraphim teach these humans the Way, capital T, capital W. The Way is this great, grand, unified religious theory of of acceptance and understanding and ascending to a new paradise beyond... Uh, Then some bad stuff happens. A particular UEF commander freaks the hell out and kills all of the Seraphim there. So, that's a thing. The surviving humans there form the Aeon Illuminate, or Illuminate. God, I always have trouble with that one. And they decide that they have a new motto. Convert or die. The UEF is, of course, what's left of the United Empire. Now... All three of these are bad guys. Let's make that 100% clear. None of these are portrayed in a way that makes them, you think that they are the good guys. The closest to that would be the Cybrans, but the Cybrans have the problem of the fact that they're not actually one nation. They're just a bunch of people who are all cybernetic, who happen to agree with a general mentality, and have no idea how exactly they, no cohesive idea of how to accomplish it. They want freedom, You know, they want equality, or or dominance in some cases, but you know, they want to not be under the yoke of the humans, and that's about all you've got to unify them. So you've got decent people over there, and then you've got some extremists, and then you've got flat-out terrorists, and then you've got insane people, like Gage. So, I know that's a later game, but still... So that's just kind of a mess. Now, the Aeon people, they have a little bit of variety, too. You know, they've got some people who are literally, convert or die, convert or die. But then they also have people like the Princess, who's a legitimately nice person who actually wants to reach out and help people. And pretty much everything in between. Now, the UEF is probably the most traditionally evil. They are the horrible dystopian empire... But the really strange thing is they're not actually presented like that. They have most of the hallmarks of it in terms of their actions and their society, but they're not actually interested in that, and they don't act like that. Rather, they act like the everyman. Like, that's what's normal, and they're just doing this because it's their job, and they are just trying to get through this because, oh, God, it's another Tuesday. Ugh. You know, it comes across as the only sane people left in the galaxy of, of cybernetic freaks and, and religious terrorists as we've got, oh, guys with guns. So they come across as more down to earth, which makes them more relatable than they really have any right to do, to be. Because, now I'm getting to the plot, the main plot of Supreme Commander has to do with this thing called Black Sun, where Prince Shizor is going to show up and, uh, sorry, sorry, wrong thing, wrong thing, where, uh, they're going to use this device to basically connect to all the transdimensional gateway stuff, kind of similar to Mass Relays and Mass Effect, and destroy planets with it. That's the UEF's goal. The Cybrans find out about this, and they say, oh, we could do something with that, too. And then the Aeon find out about it, and they're like, oh, we could do something with that, too. So the main campaign of the first game is one of the three sides trying to take over or to launch the Black Sun, and then launching it. Uh, the game gets really, 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 really difficult by the end, and got to the point where it legitimately got unpleasant to me. Now, What I find interesting is that the goal of, uh, the method by which all three factions use the Black Sun says more about their overall philosophy and mentality than anything else does the uef wants to use it to destroy key critical worlds of the enemy uh, specifically their core worlds their their central worlds of production or command to make sure that the enemy no longer has the ability to resist them then they will be able to reach out and offer peace and bring everyone back under the the flag of the united empire the aeon want to reach out and use this to connect to, to people's minds and it's not stated to be mind control, but the way it's described and the way it's presented makes me think that it's basically freaking mind-control that's going to happen here. And so that's the Aeon's goal, you know, convert all the people to the, the way. The Cybrans, this is the most telling one to me. They use it to cut off the, inner, the gateway, so everyone is going to be separate without the capacity for interstellar travel for several years while they recoup. In the meantime, all of those individual sects and factions of the Cybrans will be able to recover and build up and deal with whatever local threat they have to deal with in order to try and build a strong individual group. Because remember, the Cybrans are not actually unified. Regardless of which happens, someone wins, and as a consequence, the Black Sun is fired. This causes a rip in reality... Actually, it causes a weakening in in the fabric of reality, but it really does. It causes this rip and hole in reality, which leads to the Seraphim to invade. Yes, those guys from earlier. Uh, they invade, and what happens very quickly, and the reason it's called the Alliance's game, or the expansion, excuse me, is because the three sides have unified in order to fight the Seraphim. Funny fact, though. Uh, the Seraphim, of course, have their own units, which are basically superior to all the other ones. They have the Aeon people who have decided to join them, and they also have some Cybran forces on their their side as well because they took control of this master AI that Brackman was using. I haven't really talked about Brackman. Uh, I'm not going to talk about most of the characters in this in the Supreme Commander series because most of them don't really have anything to say about this. But I just want to say one thing about Brackman. While I like the voice actor, I wanted to slug him every time he talked. Like, it was almost impossible for him to speak without coming off his smarmy. Yes, this is rather pleasant. I can't even do it. I can't even do it. He's the only character that was memorable to me because I kept wanting to smack him in the face. And he doesn't have a face anymore. He's literally a brain and a spine. Anyways. So, the Seraphim have taken control of one of his AIs and are using it to have their own bit of Cybrans. So, Forged Alliance is pushing back against them, trying to get back to Earth and defeating this advanced attack force. Okay? Now, this is not the entire Seraphim force. This is where things get a little interesting. See, the Seraphim have this thing called the Way. I've already mentioned that to you. The Way is peaceful. The Seraphim are universally peaceful and beatific, and all have this wonderful Zen philosophy thing. Now, if that sounds contrasting, here's where things get interesting. The Seraphim who decide to fight against humanity to kill actually their their goal is genocide they want to wipe out humanity um they deliberately sever their connection to the way which now that i'm saying that reminds me a lot of starcraft 2 but i don't think that was intentional so and in fact i don't really know if starcraft 2 was out at this point um so they sever their connection to the way therefore they are literally giving up heaven or whatever happens for their ascension and are completely outcast from the rest of their society okay that's kind of culturally cool and interesting Things get a little more interesting, though, when you realize that their goal is to kill everything that is not the Way, which includes all the humans and themselves when they're done. Now that sounds a little bit bloodthirsty and horrible, but here's where it gets really interesting. The moment any Seraphim cuts off their connection to the Way, they become almost mindless, bloodthirsty and vicious killers. Now, that's interesting to me, and that's probably the only thing that really caught my attention from a lore perspective in all of these games. Not counting the Nanolath, obviously. I didn't even talk about the Nanolath. I just realized that. Um, The Nanolath is awesome. It's something that I have actually implemented in the Imperium because it's such an awesome idea. Uh, Moving on. Um, Because to me, that can imply so many different things. Are the Seraphim naturally horrific creatures? And they have developed this artificial... Uh, mindset or pattern or energy buffer or whatever it is in order to try and suppress that natural horribleness and aggression um are they is this a whiplash kind of a thing is it because they're so innately peaceful and and beatific and and nice and good and whatever that when that is severed from them they immediately whiplash into something completely the opposite i mean there's a lot of possibilities here and i'd love to hear any of your guys' thoughts for the two of you who are actually going to watch this video and the one of you who actually played the game in order to to be able to comment on this so um yeah so then that happens uh then you win Woo. A few years pass and then supreme commander 2 happens this is the really weird one of this whole series. As I mentioned, none of the Annihilation series has ever actually been a, a smash hit or has really been what I would call a truly great game, with the possible exception of the original title Annihilation. Uh with mods with core contingency, so that's getting a little astericky there. Supreme Commander 2 is... <laughs> it was designed... Okay, it happened during... Uh, it was being developed during one of the United States recessions that was happening at the time. Uh, some of you may or may not remember this. I think this was 2009, something like that. And so they deliberately made the Supreme Commander two to be uh, lower system requirements and easier to play. So they streamlined a lot of it, they brought down the complexity of some of the style of the inner workings of the gameplay and the units and the balance and all that stuff, and they made it so the graphics engine was way less intensive and could run in a much lower-end system. You can kind of see why they wanted that, but the problem is that didn't quite work out because most of the people who were only passively interested in this kind of game looked at Supreme Commander 2 and said, this is a bit too much for me and most of the people who were actively interested in this kind of tame looked at this and said, well, this is too little for me. It doesn't help that they then went in a completely different direction with the story. As I mentioned, all three of the Supreme Commander games have a strangely strong focus on story. Subcom 2 does it the weirdest, because the plot is they find this ancient alien terraforming array, and they try to take it over. That's the plot. It's, It's actually really, really simple. But that's not the focus. The focus is all on the characters, and it's, it's comedic. Uh, I've talked about this with regards to another game, Divinity Original Sin, the first one. It, I don't mean they tell jokes constantly. That's different than what I'm referring to. It's not a comedy game. But the overall tone has this kind of lighthearted, comedic tone to it, where people are snarking at each other, or making light of things, or basically are treating this as if it's all just kind of a Sunday afternoon stroll sort of a situation. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Because plenty of games, and plenty of fiction for that matter, does this with the overall light tone. And that just feels weirdly out of place in, in, in a setting as dark and horrible as Supreme Commander. But in addition to that, given the events of the game, the, the scene I remember most strongly from Supreme Commander 2, and, and we'll never forget, is when uh, Gage... Uh, accident, uh, convince, basically coerces Thalia into lowering the defenses of this city so he can nuke it. And then he nukes it ten more times. Like, that's horrible. And that's a huge moment for her. But the whole thing is basically portrayed as like this, haha, you know, like a Saturday cartoon. It's so weird. And I found myself not really having anything to, to really cling to, to talk about. Um. And, of course, it ends on a cliffhanger, just like all of them have. Every single Supreme Commander game has ended on a, you know, a stinger is actually the term. In other words, oh, my God, here's this thing. What's going to happen next time? Tune in, guys. You know, that kind of a thing. And I like that if they continue it. But by all accounts, there has been no word and no interest in continuing Subcom 2, so I have no idea where they're going to go with the whole Brackman merging with the Seraphim mind gauge thing. Spoiler alert. I have to. I had to write down the character names because I'm looking at these here. So we've got Gage, who of, I didn't have to write down his name. He's easily memorable, but at the same time, he's basically just broken. He's just a character that is completely broken. Um, Ivan is heroic, and Maddox is is proper military, and Thalia. Thalia is probably the most interesting character. I'll talk about her most, uh, and indeed, I'll talk about her at all. But aside from Thalia, almost all the characters come across as what I have referred to many times as one-dimensional. You know, they have the, the character trait, and that's it. There's nothing else there. Dolly is the exception. She is someone who actually comes across as someone who's gone through some crap in her life because she has. You know, the death of her mother, the death of her father, the dying of her brother. Uh, she is naive, of course, but she still feels like she has to try to, to fight in order to accomplish some kind of greater good. But now she questions it and she, she wants to try and accomplish this, but she's not sure how to. And when she's tricked by Gage, which admittedly she shouldn't have fallen for that, but you know, when she is tricked it's like, oh my god, and you can tell this moment has affected her. She was the character I felt most for in the entire campaign. um, And was the most interesting one. And I really wish that they had done more with that, but whatever. And that's actually all I have to say about Supreme Commander 2. You see why I bundled these together into one rumination? Because our next, and indeed last game, I don't even need my notes for this one, I just played this game today, uh, is Planetary Annihilation. Now, this is another weird one. I know I keep saying that. Planetary Annihilation... It was a Kickstarter game made by the crew who made the original Total Annihilation and the Supreme Commander series, and who wanted to avoid the publisher trap, and so they went to Kickstarter. I'm with it so far. Then they came out with Planetary Annihilation, and it was subpar and didn't really fulfill on a lot of features they had promised. Okay, that's not that great. Then they came out with an expansion, which was a standalone expansion, called Planetary Annihilation Titans. Okay. Now, here's the really weird part. The standalone expansion which they made, which you have to buy separate from the original, was actually pretty damn good and actually fixed almost all of the problems of the original, most notably the fact that the original had nothing but basic, basic pl- gameplay, which was generally disinteresting. Uh, you know, PvP deathmatches, and that's about it. Tons of optimization issues. Didn't actually go up to the unit cap as it was intended. Couldn't do certain things with planets. A lot of the unit balance was all over the place. You know, all sorts of stuff like that. Um... Titans fixed a whole lot of that. The problem for me with Titans, well, let me actually say, let me say positives first. I will say Titans did a lot of stuff good. Um, I actually showed some of this off on stream. Probably my favorite example is the fact that you can do AoE commands now. Uh, for example, rather than manually building extractors or, or resource builds, you can just hold down shift and drag a line of powered nodes or drag an area and build an extractor. It will it'll detect every extractor in that area, set a build order to every extractor in that area in a path that makes sense for you. The pathfinding is hugely improved. Uh, the interface is very smooth and quick to understand. Uh, the camera controls are fantastic. The game is smooth and plays fantastically, even when you have literally thousands of units on the screen at the time. Uh, the multi-planet thing is awesome. My only complaint with there is the fact that I want more of it. You know, the, the planet, I actually found a, uh, designed a, a match on a system which had like four planets. And I'm like, no, I want like ten. I want tons of planets. Give me more planets to play with. That's one of the most awesome things is, is launching people to different planets and using the orbital layer, which is another thing they added. So we've got ground, sea, air, and orbit. These are all the layers of combat. Every every game from Total Annihilation up to uh, Supreme Commander 2 had uh, water, land, and air. Orbit is the one that they added for planetary. And it's fun, and it's cool, and it's interesting, and I love it. Um, and of course, there's the thing that was in the, the title thing. You can literally put engines on an asteroid or a moon and collide it into a planet, which will kill everything on both the moon and the planet. Um... I actually, just for fun, just because from a lore perspective, this it was amusing to me. I had a match where I was fighting against three other guys, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out to that asteroid, and I'm just going to sit there, and I'm going to grab this second asteroid and smash it at the planet, my planet, the planet I'm trying to conquer. So, I have conquered the system, which is at this moment one asteroid. And that's it. <laughs> Yay! Uh, you're probably expecting me to talk about the lore of planetary annihilation. There kind of isn't any. Um, so, once upon a time, people made robots to do their fighting for them, and then the robots kept fighting forever. It is debatable how much sentience and sapience there is in the different commanders um in the galactic conquest or excuse me the galactic war mode. Uh, if you mouse over the systems in kind of a dark soulsy kind of a thing, each system has a tiny little blurb of lore to help flesh out some of the commanders, you know, the idea that each commander is is trying to search or fight for a different thing and they have their own goals and motives, but it's all background. There really is no actual story in any functional sense in Planetary Annihilation. It is effectively a pure arcade game, uh, which of course is a bad way to put that. But that's what I think of when I think of a game that has zero story. You know, a pure arcade game. You're here to fight other robots. Go fight other robots. There's not even different factions or sides in Planetary Annihilation like there was in previous games. There's just colors. You choose a different color and that's the color of your robots. And i think that's my biggest complaint about planetary annihilation because there was no meat on its bones even the original total annihilation i i felt invested in what i was doing as i'm pushing back the the arm assault on 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 dump or on core prime as i'm trying no we cannot let the core lose to the arm we have to try and push them back and oh my god we have to stop the core from sitting off this galactic implosion device and I don't know, I felt invested because of the campaign and because of the story and because of what I was doing. And I never felt that in Planetary Annihilation, because there really is no campaign or story or anything, so I don't actually have much else to talk about it. And I guess that's actually it. I'm done. I hope you've enjoyed this look and talk at the Annihilation series, and I hope to see you guys next time.